Welcome to Feminist Popcorn, the spooky celebration and growing archive of the greatest movies about women. I'm Samantha Rare, here with my malevolent co-host Elizabeth Frankel to talk fierce witches. The witch, Carrie, and the craft. I'm so excited to talk about witches. Witches! Yeah. It's like wicked, but witches. Yeah, really great stuff. What do we know about witches? I don't really have much of a relationship to witches, but I know you do. And I want to talk about why this episode is important to you. I'm obsessed with witches. Ah! I'm obsessed with the entire narrative of the history of witches, the folklore of witches, the way that witches are represented in modern culture. I love it all. So in the grand history of witchcraft, witches are a symbol that was invented by the patriarchy in order to scapegoat women. And I think a lot of modern representations of witches in pop culture reclaim that image of the witch and use it as an empowering symbol, which I think is awesome. And I think that's what these three movies do. I think these three movies bring up that concept Mm -hmm. But I don't know if I ended up feeling empowered by any of them. Oh, interesting. Based on the symbol of witchcraft representing strength or confidence or autonomy. I think after studying these three movies, I'm not sure I really do think of witchcraft as empowering. In fact, it sort of made me have a really ugly taste in my mouth. It made me realize that witchcraft is really more of a symbol of misogyny than empowerment and feminism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you had said something when we were preparing for this episode. I had asked you, don't you think witchcraft craft is more of a symbol of misogyny than feminism. And you said misogyny and feminism are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And to study one is to study the other. And I found that really interesting. Feminism wouldn't need to exist if not for misogyny. And so that's why I'm interested in this episode to explore how these three movies take a subject that is so bathed in misogyny and try to reframe it Mm -hmm. into a moment of empowerment for women. Sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't for me. And I still think that's all super interesting and important to talk about. I also think that movies that point out misogyny are inherently feminist. Oh, that's interesting. Because there are a lot of movies that include misogyny. Yeah. Incidentally. <laughs> right. Or romanticize it. Right. But the movies that have women at the center as mm-hmm. the main character of the story and misogyny is happening to them, mm-hmm. that is her story. Yeah, absolutely. Acknowledging her as a victim of misogyny and a human being. Yeah. And those are two feminist acts. Fabulous. I totally agree with that. I've been hearing a lot of different kinds of narratives around the Me Too movement that, you know, you'll sometimes hear from conservative women that say the Me Too movement is all about victimhood and I'm not a victim. I may have experienced those things, but I'm strong. The answer to that is, yeah, most of us, a lot of us are victims of rape culture. And that doesn't mean we're not strong. You have to acknowledge victimhood in order to fight it. Amen. So that to me is the purpose of studying the history of witchcraft and even turning it into entertainment. To study our past is to know our present. Amazing. 
amazing. Sam, you also have a history of being interested in witchcraft that goes back to college. I remember you taking a history of witchcraft course when we were in college. Yeah, it was the best class I ever took (laughs) at the University of Michigan. It was the history of witchcraft. It was a women's studies course that also had literature and pop culture. So it was was like an all-income. It was all of my interests in one (laughs) class. So a crash course right now. Fabulous. The symbol of the witch as we know it, the kind of Halloween type witch, the American culture, Western culture image of the witch is an image that was created by the patriarchy, specifically the religious patriarchy. Most religions around the world believe in magic and forbid using magic. Mm. Most acknowledge witches who are in most cases evil and women. And most religions around the world have also had a history of condemning and executing witches. It's amazing. I laugh because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But the reason why it's such a global phenomenon is because it's rooted in patriarchy. It's rooted in the idea that if something bad happens that you can't explain because you don't have the resources, you don't have the science to explain it, the easiest thing to do is blame women. So it's been a method of scapegoating women throughout history. And so if you look back at historical records, Records, the biggest surges in executing witches happened around big catastrophes like the plague. In the years following the plague, thousands and thousands of witches were burned mm. in Europe. I also just want to quickly disclaim, although some of you might find this disclaimer ridiculous, I just want to make sure we've said we do not believe that witches are real. <laughs> we really don't. No, I think right. that's important to clarify that witches in reality do not exist. I think we just need to say that, like, for the record. And just as an addendum to that, we know that the Wiccan religion is a real religion, and we also acknowledge that there are cultures all around the world that have healers and other figures who use good magic, and we're not commenting on those people. We are just talking about the figure of the witch that has been demonized historically by the Christian patriarchy. Fabulous. And so what did the historical folkloric witch look like? Old, ugly, fat, wrinkly, big nose, Mm -hmm. big hat. That was number one. Number two was young, super hot. Voluptuous. Seductress, usually wearing a red cape. (laughs) These were the two options for witches. Yeah. They were either hags who ate children, or they were beautiful seductresses whose job it was to seduce your husband. (laughs) And ruin your marriage. And kill beautiful young women who were a threat to her. Those are the symbols that we have of witches. Everything about that is demonizing women who stray from the path of righteousness. Right. The main duty of women was to be wives and mothers. Both of those images you just described are not helpful to being a wife or a mother. Exactly. What else is common about all of those witch stories? They live alone, without a husband, (laughs) in their own house. Totally. They don't have children. They don't need to play by the rules that the puritanical society has set for them. And they have their own power. Amen. They don't need a man to take care of them. It's so funny that all the things you just described to a man was so frightening because it was a threat right because right now we're saying it as like oh isn't that cool she was like in the woods by herself with her own power but back then that was so terrifying it's sort of like when you hear male politicians say something like and then what they're gonna have full control over their bodies and then women are like yeah 
Totally. Like when McConnell said, nevertheless, she persisted, which he meant demonizing Elizabeth Warren. And then women heard that and were like, yeah, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to persist. I just find that funny that the image of the witch was meant to be a negative, insulting image. Right. And then women heard it and was like, oh, no, that that makes sense. I think I want that. But the reason these movies are so interesting is because it shows the light of that, the reality of being in that kind of situation as a witch. It's really not all that romantic. None of these movies romanticize witchcraft in the way that some other movies do that we didn't choose, I think, for good reason. Um, we're not interested in romanticizing witchcraft. We're interested in showing it for all of the truth, both beauty and horror mm-hmm. that it has been. Absolutely. And where that horror really comes in is in the actual real witch hunts that happened historically, in which the basic idea was witches worked, in theory, in secret. So anyone could be a witch. Even you yourself could be a witch and not even know it. It was the easiest thing in the world to accuse anyone of being a witch. And once you had that accusation, it was pretty much impossible to disprove it because women were literally tortured until they confessed. It doesn't fit our podcast, and also the best way to experience it is by reading or seeing the play, but that's why I think The Crucible by Arthur Miller is so fantastic. Mm -hmm. Because it really shows that this narrative has nothing to do with magic. You know, people have interpreted that play differently over the years, but generally I think it's pretty clear from the text that there's no magic in it. It is completely Mm -hmm. about conspiracy theories and greed and real estate and fear of women. And of course, the interesting thing that The Crucible does is it takes a witch hunt and it reappropriates it to the McCarthy hearings. Yeah, which is really what witch hunts are. Right. They're scapegoating fear. But I do want to discuss the modern use of the word witch hunt Mm -hmm. because I think it's abused. Oh. Because a lot of men compare the Me Too movement to a witch hunt, Mm. which I think is a gross misappropriation of that phrase Mm. because frankly like you said witches don't fucking exist (laughs) rape on the other hand is so real right it's not a witch hunt if you actually are witches then it's just right let's stop this evil force in the world yeah right which is different the phrase witch hunt is associated with scapegoating people who don't deserve it Because another group is afraid. That is not what Me Too is about. People are legitimately afraid of something that is very real and very much does exist. And when the vast, vast majority of men who are accused of rape are guilty... It ain't a witch hunt. Yeah. And so where do all of these symbols come from? There is a long history of the church taking images of others, of non-Christians, and applying them to figures of evil within Christianity. This started in the Roman Empire when it was converting into Christianity because they needed an image to represent Satan so that they could scare people into converting into Christianity. So what they did was they took pagan Roman gods who were half goat and they said, that's Satan. Wow. That's what Satan looks like. He's half goat. That's fascinating. Yeah. I never made that connection before. And so that practice carried through to Europe in the Middle Ages. This is really interesting. You can look this up. The History Channel made a whole video about it. It's amazing. (laughs) There are these people called alewives. Sam, what are alewives? (laughs) Alewives were women in the Middle Ages 
who brewed ale. Like beer? Yeah, basically. They were wives because that's what they were. That's what women were. They were (laughs) wives and mothers. Sure. And they brewed ale because water was poison. Families drank beer. It was the number one beverage you could drink. Wow. So that's what mothers did. They brewed beer at home. After the plague, when a ton of families were left without mothers, Mm. and then a lot of women were left without husbands and had, you know, families to take care of by themselves, they started selling their ale because it was the one thing that they were allowed to go into business with. Mm. And besides prostitution, it was basically the only job that they could have to support their families. This led to a boom of single women independently living and supporting themselves by selling ale. And that was, of course, such a threat to the patriarchy. Mm. The idea of women being able to be single and support themselves. Businesswomen. Yeah, they were businesswomen. Why isn't this a movie? Why isn't Ale Wives the next, like, big ensemble drama? We should write it. We should write it. (laughs) Yeah. How does this tie into witches? It ties into witches because of what they looked like. Oh. Alewives, traditionally, they would slave over a hot bubbling cauldron all day. <laughs> to show that they were selling ale, they would hang a broom above their door. They would have cats around to chase the mice away from their grain. Wow. They were literally, they were making a concoction, a potion that could cause men to lose their senses. That's fascinating. And in addition, a very fashionable trend for wealthy women at the time was to wear these tall, black, pointed hats. And so what an affront that an independently wealthy woman would show off the fact that she was independently wealthy by buying herself a nice, new, pointy black hat. So all of these alewives walked around in these fashionable hats, and it was a way to mark themselves in the marketplace. Oh, like, come to me, I'm an alewife, come buy my ale. Right. Look at my hat. Look at my hat. Wow. I make my own money. So the hat has become a symbol of that independence and threat. Exactly. And so the church took all of those images, and they said, yep. We're going to give all of those to the witch. Mic drop. Mm-hmm. And why don't witches ride brooms? Why? Well. <laughs> You're blushing. You are bright red. It is a phallic symbol. Uh-huh. It is both a symbol of her sexuality, that she can be independently sexual. Oh. And you know what else it is? It's like, look at me. I'm a witch. Look at my big dick. It's big dick energy. <laughs> You're saying that it's a representation. No, it's seriously. It's a representation that witches have traits of masculinity. Masculinity And what is the trait of masculinity that men are most sensitive about? And witches got that on their own without men. Well, witches have independence, they have power, they have wealth, they have sexuality, they have all of these things that the patriarchy wants to own for themselves. The thing that's a real shame about human history And all of this that we're talking about is this would all be so interesting and empowering and so exciting and funny if everything we were talking about hasn't been so systemically punished for hundreds of years. Right. You know, it sort of takes the the glow and the humor away from it when you think of how all of this has oppressed and plagued women for so long. And the instances of empowering or cute witchcraft, like Bewitched or Glinda or even Wicked, which I love, these are really the exceptions breaking out of the system and mythology of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. They're not the norm. They're the exception. These three movies explore the relationship between patriarchal oppression and women trying to break free. All three of the movies today also take 
take place in America. And so we take this long historical narrative of witches and we set it in America. And I think that the witch hunt narrative is a deeply white Christian American narrative of both repression and victimization. So we're going to start with the movie that was made the most recently, but takes place in the 1630s. So we're going to go through this episode chronologically of when the movies are set. Mm -hmm. First movie, The Witch. The Witch. The Witch! Which takes place in New England, where historically real witch hunts took place. This is a really responsibly made movie because it's based on real written accounts and journal entries and court records, real primary sources from the era when these accusations were actually happening. And the interesting thing that the movie does is it leaves ambiguity open. It puts you in the mindset and the world of the characters and acknowledges their real fear it acknowledges the existence of witches in the world, but it leaves it open to interpretation whether or not those witches are actually real. And I think that's a great way to start this conversation about witches on the idea that no one really knows what's going on. Yeah. So The Witch came out in 2015. It was written and directed by Robert Eggers, and it stars Anya Taylor-Joy as Thomason, Ralph Innocent as her father, William, and Kate Dickey as her mother, Catherine. Before we get into the conversation of how you and I have very different interpretations of what this movie is saying and how it's saying it, I just want to say that it's beautifully shot. Mm -hmm. It's in all these muted, gray, earthy colors. There's nothing sort of bright or friendly about the colors used in the movie. And I think that sets the tone really fast and really effectively. The music is terrifying. But the main thing that I was in such admiration for is the dialogue in the screenplay is written with such a specific dialect. Their language that they use yeah. feels so of the time. It's so poetic. I had to watch it with captions because yeah. I really didn't understand what they were saying just <laughs> from their mouths. And I don't think that's a problem. I think that's friggin' awesome. And their voices sound gorgeous saying it. They're all so gravelly. There's such weight in their voices. It's as if they're speaking a different language. You know, I know they're speaking English, but it's kind of like watching a Shakespeare play. You really do feel like this is a different version of English. This mm -hmm. isn't the English that you and I are familiar with. And to see a movie made in 2015 that was so loyal to that older version of English was just so refreshing and so admirable. I was really intimidated and I thought it was awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. It was all for historical accuracy. Maybe not just for accuracy. I think it was also to plant you into the heightened specificity of this time. Hearing them speak like this gives you permission as the audience to think that this is a world in which things are different from the way that we live now. So the fact that witches are introduced fairly quickly into the film, I really didn't question because... The filmmaker had already established that this world was very heightened and very different. Our relationship to the language, too, as modern viewers, where else in everyday life do we hear that language? Probably only in, like you said, Shakespeare and the Bible. Mm. I think one of the main things that the language illustrates is how entwined this family's and this culture's lives are mm. with the Bible. Totally. That is their only book, probably. Wow. That's how they learn to communicate. That's how they learn their values. Exactly. I still mean this as a compliment to the film, but I'm not sure I totally got it the first time I mm -hmm. saw it. I think some of it sort of went over my head. And it took me two or three viewings 
to really digest just how dense and fabulous this movie is. Yeah. It really took a while for me to really get it. And I think that's great. I think that that's my problem, not the filmmaker's problem. Make an audience work hard. I mean, it's such an atypical horror movie. It's an atypical movie. Yeah. Because you literally don't know what's going on sometimes, which is the point of the movie. That ambiguity and confusion that the characters are feeling, Eggers put us in that position of feeling completely untethered to reality mm-hmm. and being afraid of everyone. I, I, at one point or another in the movie, I was afraid of every single character, thinking yeah. they could be a sociopathic murderer. The people I was actually least afraid of were the images of the actual witches, because those aren't the people that we got to know very well. If anything, the movie really hits home that what there is most to be afraid of in the world is people. Yeah. Not witches, not magic. It's people's fear. Absolutely. So when the witch narrative moved from Europe to America, Mm. it was 200 years after witch hunts had ended in Europe. Mm. And Puritans had moved to America, and they were settling in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. The witch narrative in America is completely based in fear of the woods mm. and, frankly, fear of Native Americans. And so, of course, what the church did, again, was they took images from the outsiders that they feared and they reappropriated them to the symbol of the witch. So the idea of women with long black hair dancing naked around a fire and chanting in the woods together, that was a racist stereotype that the Puritan community had of Native Americans. And so they took that racist stereotype and they reappropriated it to the witch. And so when we watch a movie like the witch, whether the movie acknowledges it or not, you know, we we see two Native Americans in the very first scene. Right. Fear of the woods, fear of what could happen outside of the community if you don't have that protection of those walls, the gate that closes in the first scene, Mm. a lot of that had to do with fear of Native Americans. Mm. One of the really interesting things that this movie does is it just has these shots of the woods with eerie music over it. (laughs) Like without that music, those shots of the woods would just be beautiful. And peaceful. Exactly. What they feared was the unknown that could be lurking, hiding out there in those trees. Mm. That was the main fear for this family. It was that they were outside of the community, alone, banished. At the mercy of people who might be lurking in the woods, trying to hurt them, which they associated with Native Americans. Exactly. So what's the main question here? What is... The main thing that we disagree on about this movie. You and I have very different ways of interpreting this movie, which I love. It seems like we've taken very, very different things from it, Mm -hmm. which is exciting. I think the main question that is on both of our minds when we watch this movie is, are the witches real or not? Is it happening? Is this movie happening or not? Give me your argument, please. Um, I think... The main, like, moral of this movie is that witches are real and it's your fault. Hmm. And I think that's so exciting. Mm -hmm. It takes the myth rumor of witches and through the intense fear of this family, realizes witches into real life. This movie isn't asking if it's happening, it's asking why it's happening. It's way more about the fear of this family and the potency of that fear realizing witches into existence. Like all of the witches in this movie are such a stereotype of what witches could be. Like 
as you were saying earlier, they're either very old and ugly or they're beautiful and seductive. They have no nuance and humanity to them the way that every other character in this family has. So you know the film is capable of that. Instead, it cuts them in half, makes them very two-dimensional, very threatening. And you realize that the fear of this family wills witches into existence. Mm. I sort of have this image in my head that every witch we've come across in the film, whether it's the old ugly hags or the young seductive witch who seduces Caleb, they were once like Thomason. They once had humanity. They had kindness. They had nuance. And the patriarchy destroyed them and stripped them of that humanity. This film is about how the patriarchy turns women into the stereotypical hags that are depicted in the film. That's why I think it's called a folktale. Because they establish from the beginning that this is a story that maybe you would tell at bedtime, it gave me permission to think that everything in the film that was happening was literal. And it was a fable giving the modern audience a moral lesson about this is what happens when your sexist fears get the best of you. You turn your daughter into a monster. Mm -hmm. Because of that, I took all of it as, at face value. I really did think that the devil had possessed this goat and that Caleb was raped by a witch in the woods. It wasn't about if, it was about why. Witches are real and it's your fault. <laughs> Great. Let's talk about that sexism for a second. Mm -hmm. Because... I want to point out the moments in the movie that that sexism is used as a weapon against Thomason. Mm -hmm. The first is when Caleb notices her cleavage mm -hmm. and immediately feels threatened by it. And mm -hmm. it's exactly the same argument people make now within the Me Too movement of, oh, she was dressed that way or, oh, she, she right. seduced me. You know, it wasn't my fault. It was the fact that this woman was burying herself in front of me. The girl was sleeping and she had a body. She was going through puberty. She did absolutely nothing wrong. And yet the look on Caleb's face is that he's been threatened, is that he's now in danger. And he reframes the situation to feel like a victim. Mm -hmm. And that's because he's been taught that witches are out to seduce and ruin him. So that's that was the first moment that I was like, oh, there's something wacky about this movie. She's blamed for pretty much everything in the movie right. from the get-go. Before children are killed, before anything really consequential happens, the missing cup. The mother is very upset about the missing cup. No one really questions how unfair it is that the father allows Thomason to take the blame for it. Right. The mother is ready to sell Thomason to a family nearby right. where she can work in another household because she's now of the age where she needs to be of use to someone. She needs to be in a position of servitude because she's now a woman, because she's now gotten her period. It very quickly associates womanhood with servitude. Hmm. And Thomason who is mostly respectful and very, like, dutiful in the movie, has a few moments of rebellion that frighten everyone. It frightens the twins. It frightens the parents. Everyone seems so afraid of the very, like, innocent moments when Thomason rebels. Mm -hmm. And in the final moments with her mother, her mother accuses her of seducing her brother, seducing her father. Yeah. It's that fear of her youth 
and her body. I also think that the reason why it's so easy for the mother to blame Thomason rather than Caleb, for example, mm -hmm. is because Caleb is much more valuable to her than Thomason. Mm. I really think that if she truly loved her daughter as much as she loved her sons, her son Sam, the baby who disappears at the beginning of the movie, and then Caleb, she would find a way to assume the best of her daughter mm. rather than accuse her. But because Thomason is less valuable than boys, mm. what the mother has lost is more precious than her daughter. Oh, so sad. So it makes it easier to put the blame on her. Yeah. I want to talk about scapegoating and the idea of conspiracy theories for a second. I remember when I was in high school, my history teacher spent an entire class lesson talking about the conspiracy theories around JFK's assassination. And my classmates and I were sort of confused because this was one of our favorite teachers who normally had very dignified classes and it felt very out of character for him to put this much energy into stuff that really didn't make any sense. And at the end of the class, he said, people would rather focus on all of this nonsense than admit that one person with one gun changed the course of America forever. It was too difficult for people to really digest that. Uh -huh. And so they made up conspiracy theories as a sort of comfort that the world is more complicated than just simple tragedy. And I think that's so relevant to this movie that which were created out of not understanding a simple tragedy like your baby having gone missing. It is too incomprehensible. It is too tragic to accept. So you have to make up something larger as an explanation because a baby just dying is too hard to swallow. Yeah. And in that sense, I have a great deal of empathy for not only this family, but for People in general who had moved to this country were very afraid and wanted somewhere to point to as a reason for their troubles. It shouldn't have resulted in so much oppression and murder, but I can understand why a mother who is so helpless and desperate after the death of her child would want some sort of explanation. Absolutely. So what is your interpretation of how the witches move through the narrative of this film? I basically agree with everything you're saying, except that I think that the witches are not real. Amazing. I agree that the witches are symbols to make sense of the tragedy mm. in their lives. But I also think that because it's called a New England folktale, it immediately fictionalizes their story. Mm. There are rational explanations for everything that happens in the movie. Wow, really? When the baby disappears in the first few scenes, Thomason is closing her eyes. She doesn't actually see what happens. But you think in like the two seconds that her eyes are closed, a wolf came along and took the baby? It's possible. Yeah. In a new world that you just sailed to, anything could happen. Yeah. When Caleb disappears, Thomason has been knocked unconscious. She doesn't see that either. And all we see is him coming home delirious and naked. Right. Anything could have happened to him in the woods. So you don't think that that shot of the witch seducing him is an indication that it really happened. You think it's more a manifestation of their own paranoia. That's exactly what I think. Fabulous. And when the twins see the witch in the barn, Thomason is sleeping. That was scary, I gotta say. That was a scary moment for me. Mm -hmm. I jumped a little. I think that the movie becomes sort of a scary 
scary bedtime story Mm. that maybe a family in the next farm over could tell their children in order to explain a very real tragedy that happened to that family. Mm. That they ran out of food and maybe they were eating some bad bread with fungus on it that made them a little crazy and their fear caused them to turn on each other. Mm. That's all very real. Yeah. The images that we get of the witch only happen outside of the real world of this family. That's true. The color scheme in this film vastly changes whenever there's a witch present. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, the witch's cloak or the fire is very bright, very saturated, sort of electric, whereas the rest of the film feels muted. So tell me how you feel about the ending, where Lucifer possesses Black Philip, speaks verbally to Thomason. She goes into the woods. She sees a group of witches, starts dancing with them, and flies into the sky. What do you think of all that? I think the story ends when she kills her mother. Oh no. I think that that is the moment when Thomason turns into the monster that everyone believed her to be. Right. She turns into a very real monster. And I take that transformation into a monster literally, and you don't. Right. Cool. I think that she becomes the thing that the patriarchy fears. She becomes a young woman who lives independently in the woods. And so the folklore ends with that independence that she only was able to gain through violence, Mm. through self-defense. Yeah. And it makes her the villain of the story. Yeah, wow. And I sort of think that image of her at the end, like with her people... Flying. Flying and empowered, sexually empowered. Yeah. A woman. She's a grown-up. I do think that that is an empowering shot, Mm. even though it's so scary. It's like, fuck you. If you think I'm a monster, I'll be a monster. Absolutely. I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly what all three of these movies have in common, which is if you want me to be a witch, I'll fucking be a witch. Just watch. That's cool. Yeah. I'm really taken by this movie because it's scary in a way that not a lot of films are scary. Its ideas are scary. It's not like certain characters are scary in the way that they present evil. It's that the ideas of the movie, the themes are scary. Right. And it's very uncomfortable to watch watch but i freaking love it so now we're moving on to carrie i love carrie so much i loved it when i was a kid but now watching it as an adult especially in the context of this podcast made me love it so much more Mm -hmm. it has aged so well yeah it's just campy over the top emotionally compelling horror bliss yeah so carrie came out in 1976 It was directed by Brian De Palma. The screenplay is written by Lawrence D. Cohen, based on the novel by Stephen King. And the movie stars Sissy Spacek as Carrie and Piper Laurie as Mama. Before we get into Carrie, this film, in relation to feminism and witchcraft, I just want to say how much I love Stephen King. I know that's not a very original thought, because everybody loves Stephen King, but... He just had such a huge influence on my childhood about how to tell stories effectively, how to use genre to express emotional themes. I just think he's great. Wow. Reading Carrie as a kid was very, very influential on me. Wow, you read it. Oh, yeah. I read it before I saw it. Talk about a man nailing 
the experiences of a young girl. I feel like Carrie was one of the first movies to showcase how cruel teenage girls could be and also show you a teenage girl who's ruthlessly bullied. Sure. I mean, I don't think we would have Heather's Mean Girls, The Craft. I don't think we would have any of these movies. Welcome to the Dollhouse. Welcome to the Dollhouse if Carrie didn't give everyone permission to be like, this is compelling. Yeah. Just everywhere you turn, there's something really compelling and weird happening from the opening scene. Let's just talk about how iconic and bizarre and game-changing the opening scene is. Yeah, I was shocked watching that scene last night Mm. because I hadn't seen the movie in a long time. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten it and all of a sudden I'm in a locker room and there's a lot of naked teenagers walking around with their tits out. (laughs) And the camera is slow-mo, gazing at them while they're, like, throwing towels at each other and laughing. And then it pans over to Carrie in the shower, and she's, like, rubbing herself with soap. And I'm like, what am I watching? Is this feminist? What is this weird, like... Is this softcore porn? Yeah, like, indulging in these, like, naked teenagers... And then... You get slapped across the face. Yeah. And Carrie's got blood on her hands and she's screaming and these girls just turn into monsters out of nowhere. The porn-esque male gaze tone that's set in the first, like, 30 seconds is abruptly disrupted, thrown in the trash, and replaced with something that has never been seen in movies before, which is a girl terrified about her period, and then girls bullying her for that. Like, that's such a bizarre narrative for an opening scene. Yeah. I also want to just quickly go back to the two seconds of Carrie enjoying her body before the blood. She, for for a very quick moment, she's a part of that casualness. She's a part of that comfort of her body. She's enjoying the shower. And I just want to appreciate that, although it is in this very brief satirical moment of the male gaze, She's enjoying her body too. And I think that sets us up to have our hearts ripped out when womanhood punches her in the face. And then all these other girls like kind of literally punch her in the face after that. That word satirical is really important because it is almost like playing a joke on the male audience. Yes. And saying, haha, you thought this movie was about you. Right. And the way you look at women. But it's not. It's about these girls. Yeah. And fuck you for gazing at them the way that you always do, because this is not where this movie's going. And it suddenly becomes a scene that is very intimately relatable to a lot of girls. And inherently female, when the scene had originally been established as being sort of inherently male, the way that men look at women. And the pace at which that shifts is so satisfying and clever to me. And for the rest of the movie, we stay in the world of the girls. We never return to that gaze. I'm also so obsessed with the satire that Stephen King and Brian De Palma are saying by implying that a girl turning into a woman is as potent as horror. Yeah. Carrie discovering something about her body that no one ever had the fucking intelligence to tell her about and to warn her was going to happen, the look of terror on her face that she thinks she's dying is really, really powerful. And that they mock her for this. They mock her for not understanding something that she's supposed to know, but she's not supposed to talk about, right? Like Mm -hmm. all women are supposed to be very confident about how their bodies work, 
but they're not supposed to communicate about it. Yeah, frankly, when Miss Collins and the principal were talking about it, like, not believing that she didn't know. Right. You know what that means? It means that that school has no sex education program. <laughs> it yeah. means that the school didn't teach her. Totally. She was just supposed to figure it out on her own. Right. She's sheltered. The hypocrisy of the patriarchy, that women are supposed to be in full control over their bodies and know what childbirth will be like, know what having a period will be like, but then no one giving them the resources to learn about all this. Actually, it's so funny. I've been thinking a lot about Ali Wong's comedy special, Hard Knock Wife, because she goes into great graphic detail about what it is to give birth Mm. and then what happens to your body after that. That was a fucking lesson to me. I had no idea about the majority of what she was talking about. And I'm like, you know, an educated woman who likes knowing things about women. I had no idea. And uh, one of my best friends gave birth like a year ago and I asked her about all of it. And she said, yeah, nobody fucking told me either. (laughs) (laughs) And as sad as all that is, I appreciate the humor that Carrie takes with it in satirizing the absurdity that nobody tells girls something that they then mock them for for not knowing. Like when culture mocks young teenage girls for getting pregnant, for being stupid and getting knocked up, when nobody told them about condoms. Yeah. That's not the young girl's fault. That's society's fault. And frankly, like, I don't blame Carrie at all. Periods are the fucking worst. (laughs) I have my period right now. I was on the first day of my period yesterday when I watched this movie. (laughs) I was sitting on my couch watching this movie in a lot of pain. Yeah. With like your body feeling like it's betraying you. It's gross. Yeah. It's expensive. It's inconvenient. I had to stay home from school a lot in high school because of period cramps. Because my period cramps were that bad. That's horrible. Periods are the fucking worst. They're the worst. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier in this episode, that victimhood does not make you weak. That women carry this burden of having this monthly, like, dumpster fire in our bodies. And to acknowledge that doesn't mean... We're not strong, capable women who can take it and deal with it with integrity and a sense of humor. But it is important to acknowledge. Yeah. Oh, my God. I felt the same way my first period. Mm. I was terrified. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I had heard of periods, of course. I knew that, like, it was possible in my future. But, like, in the moment, there's, like, blood coming out of my body. Yeah. And that's never happened to me before. Yeah. I really thought I was dying. Mm. And, oh, my God. I, like fainted the first time I put in a tampon. (laughs) I don't even think my mom knows that. That's funny. You fainted out of fear? Out of just like... Stress. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because your experience and the narrative in Carrie would both imply that periods are only cumbersome and they're only evil and stressful. But as someone with PCOS, Mm -hmm. I got my period very late into my teens, which had its own burden of emotional stress that I wasn't a woman, that I wasn't going through puberty the way I was supposed to, that I was never going to have children. It had all these other very heavy emotional burdens that when I got my period finally, I was so fucking relieved. Mm. And for years after that, like through all of like late high school and through all of college, every time I got my period, I was thrilled because it just meant that my body was working the way that it was supposed to be working. And that was nice. Wow. So... I'm sort of over that now. Now I sort of just hate periods because it's been a while. But I remember thinking at the time, the only thing worse than going through this horrible thing would be not going through it, which implies that there's something else that you have to go through. Mm. Why don't women talk about this? 
Yeah. PCOS is a very real thing. Look it up. One in eight women have it. Yeah. You know, plenty of women don't get a period for a variety of reasons. And then plenty of women are like regularly debilitated by it. Yeah. And I feel like between that and the emotional and physical stress of childbirth, like you were saying, I sort of don't blame women throughout history for believing that it was a punishment for something Mm. because they didn't have the science to explain it. And, you know, women's empowerment has been linked throughout history to women having access to scientific knowledge. And that's why religion tends to be anti-women because religion is anti-science. And I was amazed at how similar Margaret, Carrie's mother's jargon, was to Thomason's family, which was 350 years earlier. She says, if she had remained sinless, the curse of blood would never have come upon her. That is so, like, similar in even just sentence structure to the way that Thomason's family talked. And then later when she says, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, that's not just fantasy mumbo jumbo. That line is straight from the Bible. Mm. And it's like, no, you have access to science. There is a scientific reason why your daughter got her period. Her teachings of the Christian church and her commitment to the Christian church turned her into this symbol of internalized misogyny. Yeah. Related to the opening scene and just tying it into the end as well, I found it very interesting that we start with her bathing in blood in the shower at school and we end with her bathing in blood she takes off her prom dress and she takes a bath that gets filled up with the blood i just think there's something very full circle and metaphorical about starting with blood and ending with blood absolutely as cleansing and as rebirth and as evil i think chris chooses the blood as a weapon against carrie because she's already seen carrie's fear of blood she is using carrie's own fear as a weapon against her wow that's genius let's talk about some of the characters who aren't monsters yeah because i feel like that's where the story finds nuance I'm obsessed with Sue. I'm obsessed with Tommy. I'm obsessed with the gym teacher. Yeah. These are all real characters who have real struggles beyond just being there for Carrie's narrative. Like, Sue goes on a real arc in this movie. She starts fully participating in Carrie's abuse in the locker room. And she realizes the damage that she's done to Carrie. And she needs to find a very quick, very severe path for redemption. And her choice is to have her boyfriend, this beautiful, popular guy, take Carrie to prom. Yeah, that to me was the most unrealistic thing about the movie. That's so funny. It totally felt earned to me. The idea that a teenage girl would give up going to prom with her really cute boyfriend and like stay home so that this girl that she wasn't friends with could have a good night. That's why I think Sue is such a compelling character because when Miss Collins confronts her in the gym after the locker room incident Mm -hmm. and really paints the picture for Sue just how horrible what she did was i think sue really has a has a moment has a revelation of her power in this world as a popular girl and the things that she's capable of and she realizes that she doesn't want to be like chris she wants to be a good person and she's with this very very good guy who goes along with it no questions asked which implies to me that the both of them were always good-hearted people and they got wrapped up in the vanity and the toxicity of high school and Sue realizes she doesn't want to be like that. That felt very compelling to me and, and really earned. And it ends with her trying to defend Carrie against Chris at the prom, trying to get her to stop knocking the blood over. 
I was reminded of the narrative of abusers who reform themselves later, that there's nothing really you can do to repay the damage that has already been done, Mm. because Carrie has already been traumatized. Yeah. That trauma is never going to go away. Yeah. Sue is probably never going to be able to escape her guilt over what she did. Mm. And I think that's what the end of the movie represents when she is dreaming about visiting Carrie's grave. Mm. I think she still feels personal guilt over what happened to everyone. Absolutely. And I feel like everything you just described is sort of further evidence to me that when you have that much guilt and trauma by your own act traumatizing somebody else, that's certainly worth a prom date to me anyway. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I think it's structured really beautifully in the screenplay that Chris approaches Billy to ask for a favor within like five minutes of when Sue asks Tommy for a favor. Both of these high school couples, they're both beautiful and popular Mm -hmm. and you already see a distinction of their paths. That they started in the same place to Carrie. They were both Carrie's tormentors. And within 20 minutes of the movie, Sue and Chris have already very clearly diverted from each other. And Chris goes down one path asking her boyfriend for one thing. And then Sue asks Tommy for another. I just think that was framed really well to have them so close together in the movie. Yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, why does Chris hate Carrie so much? Oh, it made sense to me. Why does she even phrase it to her boyfriend? I hate Carrie White. What did this girl do to her? Except in her twisted worldview, it's Carrie's fault that she got detention, that she got punished for being a bully, and that she's not going to be allowed to go to prom because she talked back to Miss Collins. I think it's a lot deeper than that. I think when you're that age and you're so afraid of yourself and you're so afraid of all your classmates, people hate what they fear. If you were in high school, your biggest fear in the whole world would be to be Carrie White. No friends, awkward, in their eyes, ugly. It is your worst nightmare that that's who you would be in high school. Chris thinks of herself as the antithesis to Carrie. Everything that Carrie represents to her, she wants to destroy. It made sense to me. Absolutely. And if you contextualize this movie in the witch hunt narrative, Carrie's mother accuses her of witchcraft simply because she's a girl. Simply because it is sinful to be a woman. Mm. That is one classical example of why women were accused of being witches. The other is more similar to how Carrie is treated in school. That hatred that you're talking about, that like baseless hatred of someone just for being different, that's what a lot of women were accused of Mm. during the witch hunts. Because they were outsiders, because they were independent, because they rolled outside of the pack, they must be witches. And even though this movie takes the point of view that witchcraft is real and that Carrie has actual powers, if you take that narrative outside of the story, this is about a girl who is abused from all sides. Mm-hmm. And that's what the witch narrative is all about. Absolutely. I think what's really heartbreaking about this movie is that both the witch and the craft give moments of turning their identities as witches into something empowering. In Carrie, that never happens. Mm-hmm. Her telekinesis is never given an opportunity to be special the way that it would be in Matilda, for instance. There's nothing beautiful about her telekinesis. It only causes her harm. It only further alienates her from the people in her life. Especially because... 
what happens at the end of the movie is not satisfying. It's not like retribution that those kids deserve. Yeah, let's talk about the ending, this really famous ending that says a lot in one action. Yeah. So she's humiliated. She has this practical joke thrown on her. You and I have talked about how we believe that her perspective looking out on the crowd of everybody laughing isn't real. And that she's having a moment of delirium in the midst of her trauma where she sees everyone laughing because she hears her mother's voice in her head saying they're all going to laugh at you. But in reality, they probably aren't. Yeah, it's probably just Norma. It's probably just Norma. Everyone is horrified for her and is probably on her side freaked out that this has happened. And in the midst of this panic, she uses her telekinesis to kill everyone at the prom and lock them in while the gym burns down. Yeah. She kills Chris and Billy on her way home. And then once she's there, her her mother thinks that she has been possessed by the devil and tries to kill her. Carrie ends up killing her. And then their house burns down. It's a bleak ending. Yeah. In what was already a very bleak movie. Yeah, it's interesting to watch this movie now Mm -hmm. because that ending would have been in a really different context in the 1970s when it came out. But now we're in a time where we are very familiar with the idea of a kid who has experienced bullying, who has been tormented, who is an outsider, going into his school and murdering his classmates. Yeah, this is a narrative that I can't imagine Stephen King could have foreseen when he wrote this right. that we would be in this epidemic of mass shootings. Carrie to me is sort of more than anything the narrative of a school shooter. Mm. And what's really interesting about it is that in real life school shooters are boys. Like 99% of the time. Yeah, it's it's not biased media. It's just fact. Right. The idea of a kid who's been tormented taking that abuse and turning it into external violence. Yeah, avenging their bullying. Yeah, that is a male narrative. Yeah, which is so fascinating that this book was written and movie was made before that narrative really came into the limelight right. of American culture. I think it's really devastating, but also important and compelling to be able to watch stories like Carrie and put it into a new context. The main point is Carrie's classmates, Miss Collins, none of those people deserve to die. Even Chris and Billy, who were absolutely disgusting no. monsters, the, the idea of them getting their comeuppance is absurd. There's two, I think, really important scenes at the beginning of the movie where Chris is first slapped by Miss Collins and then slapped by her boyfriend, Billy. Mm -hmm. What I got from those two moments were this girl, who I absolutely hate, (laughs) who I have nothing good to say about, still does not deserve to be slapped in the face by her teacher or her boyfriend or anyone. No one deserves that kind of violence as punishment for their actions. There are other ways to punish people. I think one of the most powerful points this movie makes, especially in this new context of of mass shooters, is portraying a picturesque, suburban, quaint culture as being defined by a violence that no one wants to talk about. Yeah. And so someone like Carrie seems like she's coming out of left field, when really there have been hints that this culture is defined by violence all along. Her mother locks her in the closet. The nice gym teacher, as you said, slaps the bully. That felt weird to me. That didn't seem like something that should happen. The movie gives these clues 
that violence is the language of this world. And the world they're talking about is America. It's like suburban America, which is where today mass shooters are. Wow. Yeah. We're, we're saying all really sad things. And I know that these three movies are, are fairly grim, but... I do just want to say, I have a great time watching Carrie. I think Carrie is like, it's like an entertaining horror movie. Yeah. You know, I I get a lot of enjoyment out of squirming watching Carrie. Also, I love a prom scene. (laughs) What? I just, I love seeing Carrie all pretty in her dress. Yeah. I love the stars hanging from the ceiling. (laughs) I love the music. I love all of it. Like, my favorite episode of Buffy is the prom episode. (laughs) It's so nostalgic. There's a quote in Never Been Kissed, which is a fantastic movie, where Josie's brother Rob said, I thought it was going to be like Carrie. I thought she was going to kill us all. (laughs) And that was my first exposure to Carrie. So when I finally read and saw Carrie, I was like, oh, that's what that reference was. That's so funny. (laughs) So then we move from the 1970s to the 1990s. Where being a witch is cool now. Yeah. All of a sudden. It's the thing to be. The Craft was released in 1996. It was directed by Andrew Fleming, and it was written by Peter Filardi and Andrew Fleming. It stars Robin Tunney as Sarah, Faruja Balk as Nancy, Neve Campbell as Bonnie, and Rachel True as Rochelle. So there was a real trend in the 90s of young feminist women becoming Wiccans and indulging in witchcraft and dressing like witches. Witches were like cool in the 90s. And I think this movie being so specifically set in the 90s is related to that. Why I think it's such a great way to end this episode on the craft, having started at the witch, moving through Carrie, is that the characters in the craft take the oppression that they have inherited from these last two cultures and they've reappropriated it into being cool and to being empowering until they get their comeuppance. And I think that full circle is really interesting. It's why The Craft is separate from this podcast, just one of my favorite movies in general, Mm. because it explores the idea that when you reappropriate oppression, it's still oppression and it's still going to hurt you and it's going to hurt others around you. Mm. And Positivity and empowerment can only somewhat be born out of something so dark and evil, which is the patriarchy. Yeah. I cannot speak highly enough about how fond I am that this movie really pushes past where you think it's going to go. It goes way beyond that. The end of the film, where the four of them are at in their dynamics to each other, their relationships, Nancy and the friggin' mental institution, is so unrecognizable to the beginning of the movie. They don't seem like the same movie. They don't seem like the same characters. And that's, I think, the journey that witchcraft can take you on. They go through every single theme of witchcraft that I'm interested in is explored in the craft. It's so interesting because I was really kind of disappointed when Nancy talked about 
Manon their male god? Like, why are they obsessed with this male god rather than a female god? And I think it has more to do with what you're talking about, that no matter how much they reappropriate this tradition, it's still a patriarchal tradition. Bathed in rape culture. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, this is just a general observation of why I love the craft so much. The three girls, Bonnie, Rochelle, and Nancy, become corrupted by power, take advantage of the power that they've been given and they get cocky about it and they start using it to hurt people and the reason this is maybe my favorite movie ever is because that is so separate from gender that is just treating these three girls as human beings who are susceptible to being corrupted by power yeah hannah gadsby who i love in her stand-up special nanette she has a line that said women are just as corruptible by power as men because men don't have a monopoly on the human condition. And I think that's very funny. So brilliant. It's so funny and brilliant. That's what I think this movie does that I don't think any other movie on our podcast has done so far. Halfway through the movie, it really stops being about their relationship to womanness and to witchcraft. And it extends to something so much deeper about the human condition, which is our susceptibility to being corrupted by power. If you take a movie like Mean Girls for instance, which I love. The emotional violence that's done in that movie, the bullying, feels very gendered. They abuse each other in a way that does feel very culturally specific to the way girls bully each other. Yeah. And it's making a comment about that, about this is specific to this gender culture. The reason I like the craft is because I think it goes beyond that. It transcends that. It's not about girls bullying other girls and the way that girls do that. It's about human beings abusing their power. Human beings with access to power are likely to abuse it. Right. The tragedy is that it's harder for women to have access to that power. Right. That's why we think of abuse of power as a male narrative. Because historically, men have had power, so they abused it. Who has the most power in high school? Teenage girls. They have power because, like Hannah Gadsby says in Nanette, women are told that they are in their prime when they're 17 years old. Mm. And so that's why we have so many movies about mean high school girls. And that's why those are some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life. (laughs) Because that is when girls have power. Mm. That is when women have power. And what do people do with power? They abuse it. That's really interesting. Related to what you said earlier about the theme of Christianity through these films, I think it's important to acknowledge that all three of these movies take place in overtly Christian settings that the filmmakers thought that was really important to include. That the witch takes place in a puritanical community, Carrie takes place in a very conservative Christian household, and the craft takes place in a Christian high school where they're wearing crosses throughout the film, both unironically because they are Catholic high school students, but also ironically because they're witches. (laughs) And that duality is very funny. Yeah. Also, I think if We're saying that the pattern of these movies is that they are witches because they are abused, that they've been driven to become witches. Mm -hmm. I think that's still true for the craft, except that that abuse happened before the movie started. Them being othered is still an important reason why they're witches. Nancy is a freak. (laughs) She's like the goth freak. At one point, she's referred to as white trash. Bonnie has scars all over her body that Chris calls gross 
and Rochelle is othered because she seems to be one of the only women of color in this whole school. Mm. Sarah comes into the story as an other, as a new girl in school, and has a history of depression and is perhaps othered by her mental illness. All of these girls find sanctuary in one another, in their otherness. They channel those feelings of otherness towards their magic, and they use it as a tool to survive their otherness. And in some ways, they use their otherness as a power. Mm -hmm. Nancy sees Sarah's scar on her wrist, and she calls it punk rock. And so she gives Sarah power in that moment over her otherness. The reason I think this movie is so great is because that alone would be enough to make this an interesting movie. Mm. But that's like only half the movie. The other half is where they take this idea of empowering themselves, weaponizing what makes them other, and they use it to abuse other people. And they <laughs> exploit it and they go too far. Yeah. And then they face consequences for going too far. Like this movie just tops itself like every 20 minutes <laughs> with a different plot point. It's so cool. One of the major fears of witches lies in the fear of sisterhood, mm. of women coming together as a group. Sure. And having secret packs with one another. These girls are only able to access their power once they come together as a group. They yeah. keep talking at the beginning about their fourth, finding their fourth. They're only able to form that circle as like a little army. Yeah. My favorite theme of this movie ties back to the witch, which is that both of these movies make excellent use of fear. Within the first five minutes of the craft starting, the three girls walk down the hallway and two stupid punk bullies pretend they're afraid of these girls. They've already set up that these girls aspire to be intimidating and they're not yet because they don't really have their powers. So you've already established that fear is going to be a theme in this movie. They're not intimidating yet until Sarah's there and it finishes what you're talking about. That they become a finalized coven of sisterhood. At the end, when Nancy goes haywire on Sarah, the only way that she's winning at the moments that she's winning is when Sarah is afraid. She's afraid of the snakes. She's afraid of her father being hurt. She's afraid of Nancy. As soon as she denies that fear and she's no longer afraid of Nancy, Nancy loses her power really, really fast. These are a lot of the same themes in It, another Stephen King book, actually. Mm -hmm. When you bottle and weaponize fear, you can do almost anything. Mm -hmm. And that's really, really scary. Like, there's no better theme for a horror movie than that. Because, I mean, that's the political climate we're in right now. Politicians have weaponized people's very real fears and used it against them to create more bigotry and more violence. Yeah. So if anything, I think the craft is just smart to watch now to understand how fear motivates. And I think that the way that Sarah is able to fight them in the end is really important. That she is afraid of her power, her natural born power, because she's seen how it corrupts others, how mm. it has corrupted Nancy and... Lirio, the woman in the magic shop, mm -hmm. has a really important line to her when she suggests that Nancy took the power and put it in a dark place. Mm -hmm. That it's possible to take power and use it for good. Yeah. And I think that's where this movie stands apart from the other two. Mm. It's that 
the fear of witches is that women have power. Mm -hmm. Women don't have to fear power for themselves. Anyone with good intentions can use power for good. I know it's not a movie, but I feel like so much of what you're talking about, of these questions of good intentions and using power for good or for evil, all of this is in Wicked. <laughs> yeah. Like, Wicked's the most interesting exploration of witchcraft ever. Yeah. Um, I love Wicked. I love Wicked, too. What's fascinating, though, is that Sarah has had her powers from the very beginning. She was just naturally born with those powers. It seemed like Nancy really needed Sarah to access her powers, mm -hmm. and she also needed Manon. Yeah. She she needed that patriarchal narrative of witchcraft in order to gain power for herself. Mm, that's sad. Sarah had it all along. Yeah. I also noticed that Nancy is the only one who seems particularly fixated on Menon. And she uses this phrasing a couple of times throughout yeah. the movie. She says... I want him to fill me. I want to be filled with him, which could both be like a sexual reference, but also if you need to be filled by something, what does that mean? It means you're empty. Nancy was empty in a way that the other girls weren't. There was something uniquely deprived about Nancy mm -hmm. that I think led to her darkness. In the end, it really struck me and kind of broke my heart that after Sarah binds her from doing harm, apparently all that was left of Nancy was psychosis. If Sarah had bound Rochelle or Bonnie, there might have been something else left to them that was lucid and kind and could go through life. But if you took away Nancy's drive to harm, there was nothing left. Right. That really hit me this time in a way that it hasn't in the past. Mm. And in terms of this fear at the end that Sarah has to overcome, God, they're really smart. The three of them use her mental illness against her. That's their weapon that they use to try to bring her down. Yeah. Is her history of suicide, her history of depression, her guilt regarding her mother. That's some cunning villainy. But you can tell that Bonnie and Rochelle have not thought this through. <laughs> they find themselves in the position at the end, sort of without knowing how they got there. <laughs> They're followers. Yeah. It's sort of established from the beginning of the movie that Nancy is a leader, Sarah is a leader, and those two girls are followers. Even the way that they film them as a group, often Nancy and Sarah will be walking ahead and Bonnie and Rochelle will be walking behind. When they're driving the car, Nancy and Sarah are in the front seat, Bonnie and Rochelle are in the back seat. Nancy sort of bypasses the two of them and promotes Sarah in the click. Yeah. As soon as she joins. Yeah. The moment in the end when Sarah reclaims her power and calls upon Menon and she's lying on the floor in her house wearing her school uniform. I just found that a very striking, powerful image of this like young girl in her school uniform calling on this deity to fight back against the darkness that had been brought into her house. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was cool. Yeah. That last scene is really horrifying. Yeah. It's hard to watch. And those were all real snakes and bugs. I mean, the snakes are one thing, but I think the scariest moment is when they convince her that her parents are dead. Yeah. Like, that is plain fucking cruel. Yeah, it's fucked up. But also, it's interesting to juxtapose that kind of evil mm -hmm. with... Like the school bully, Laura Lizzie. Yeah. Who's straight up racist to Rochelle. Yeah. I don't think she's any less cruel than Nancy. 
Mm. I want to talk about Chris and what this film says about rape culture because it says a lot and it's so interesting yeah. and I just love every minute of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like what you said earlier that the depiction of misogyny can be a feminist act if it's conscious enough, like if it's aware enough of what it's doing. The fact that Chris is established in the beginning as being a pig and yet she still likes him for whatever reason. The mixture of him being charmed under a love spell with his entitlement as a man that rape culture has given him. Yeah. That he's entitled to women whenever he wants them. Those two things mixed together, the love potion and rape culture, result in his death. Like, it results in something so horrible that's traumatizing for everyone. And I just think that's a really interesting point. His being in love with her doesn't suddenly turn him into Prince Charming. And it doesn't mean that he's entitled to her now. Right. The fact that he's in love with her mixed with the fact that he feels entitled to any woman he comes across Mm -hmm. has disastrous results. Exactly. This is also the only film we have of the three that really goes into depth with what witchcraft actually is. Like we see them doing spells. We see them having prayer circles. We see them chanting. We see them lighting candles. There's a series of rituals in this movie that's so specific and so detailed that really doesn't exist in the first two movies. Right. And I find that really interesting that this movie explores witchcraft in a in a textured kind of way that the other movies don't do. And what's interesting is, you know, again, all three of these movies are made by men, but uniquely out of the three of them, the craft, it seems, was really influenced by its technical advisor, who was a woman named Pat Devon, mm. who was a real Wiccan. Mm. And so she was responsible for basically creating all of the references to witchcraft in the movie. Mm. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And so a lot of the rituals that they do are actual Wiccan rituals, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. It's also the first time that we see witchcraft as actually being cool. Like the things they do in this movie, they change their hair, they have Rochelle floating in a bedroom, like cool shit happens in Mm -hmm. this movie. It makes magic look attractive for the first time, at least in this episode. I think it really broke ground in saying that this thing we've been accusing women of is magic is like powerful magic. That should be seen as a good thing. That should be seen as something that we embrace. Yeah. This movie does everything I want a movie about witchcraft to do. (laughs) It explores all the moral questions that I have about witchcraft, and it shows it as this very visceral, visual, theatrical thing. Also, just about Andrew Fleming, who directed it, he also directed Hamlet 2, which (laughs) won't fit our rubric, but is a fantastic movie that I think everyone should see if they need a good laugh and just to let themselves go. If they're having a bad day and you just want to go home and laugh at something brilliant and stupid, (laughs) Hamlet 2 is the best movie ever. It is a really ridiculous and funny movie. I like that we're ending on the craft because I think that the fact that Sarah can endure all of this and come out of it intact and with her power is such an important statement. Yeah. And I think that's what all of these movies are doing metaphorically Mm -hmm. by reclaiming that abuse and reappropriating it to give women power. So after these three amazing movies, what do you want our listeners to take from this in their relationship towards witchcraft, their understanding of it? Why did we do this episode? I think just because, you know, tis the season, (laughs) 
we're surrounded by witch imagery right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this holiday season, just look around you. Look around at children's costumes. Look around at your favorite Halloween movies, your favorite depictions of witches in pop culture, and, you know, your favorite horror movies that use witches as villains. Look around at all of these images and remember where we came from. Yeah, remember that all of these images, they come from a legacy. We have inherited this history and it's important to know your past so you can understand your present and take control of your future. You know, when you watch American Horror Story or when you watch Hocus Pocus, which are both (laughs) very fun, they don't live in a vacuum. They come from this legacy. And I think it's just nice to appreciate that for a second and to perceive those images in this context. And speaking of using your powers for good, this is a message to all of our American witches out there. We have a very important American election coming up this week. And, you know, just vote. For the love of God, vote. Vote. Please vote. Use your powers for good. (laughs) Are you a good witch or a bad witch? (laughs) Please vote. There we are. I can't be any less direct than that. So we're in this spooky mood, right? We just had three really spooky movies. And we've got a spooky election coming. (laughs) Fair enough. We're in a very spooky season, so we're going to keep the spooky party going, and we're going to introduce the next three movies. Our next episode is horror. Horror Horror movies. We're going to watch scary movies. Scary, scary movies. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not done being scared. (laughs) Yeah, we were really happy to do an episode just on witchcraft. But in the season of Halloween, we're going to explore how the stylistic use of horror enhances the storytelling. Excellent. So without further ado, our first movie we will be covering in our next episode is the 2017 Norwegian thriller Thelma, in which a religious college freshman tries to suppress her burgeoning sexuality as well as her mysterious epileptic fits. I also want to disclaim this is not Thelma and Louise, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which we will talk about on this podcast. This is Thelma. It's a different movie. Yes. Thelma in Norwegian. Thelma. The next movie we'll be covering is the 2010 psychological thriller Black Swan in which a professional ballerina struggles to perfect her performance as the Swan Queen in Swan Lake. And the third movie we'll be covering is the 2014 Australian horror film The Babadook, in which a widowed mother and her young son are haunted by a malicious storybook come to life. And we want to give a trigger warning for all three movies for self-harm and violence, and then specifically for Thelma for strobe effects. These three movies are fabulous. (laughs) I am so looking forward to discussing them with you. Me too. And I hope everyone has a safe and fun Halloween. And a politically active November. Yes. (laughs) Amen. Also, special thanks this week to the composer of our theme song, Barrett Riggins, for our sweet new Halloween remix. And also special thanks to Professor Kivelson at the University of Michigan, who I am in total gratitude to for my entire history of witchcraft education. I am absolutely no expert, but I hope I did you proud. Bye! 
Feminist Popcorn is produced and hosted by Samantha Rare and Elizabeth Frankel. Our theme music is by Barrett Riggins. Our cover art is by Hannah Perry. Keep up with us on Instagram and Facebook at Feminist Popcorn. Tweet us at official underscore fempop. Email us at feministpopcorn at gmail.com. Find links to all our movies on feministpopcorn.com and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday. There's just hostility in your voice, which I think is great, but... I'm hostile. Okay, great. Fabulous. (laughs)